0: Support for the Health Channel podcast comes from Florida Cancer Specialists. Florida Cancer Specialists urges everyone not to postpone recommended screenings such as mammograms, colonoscopies, or biopsies. Regular screenings save lives. More at flcancer.com slash get screened.
1: The COVID-19 pandemic continues to surge around the world, shattering lives and sending entire nations into lockdown. We've seen millions of infections, hospitals at the breaking point, and more than 400,000 deaths in the U.S. alone. What will it take to get the pandemic under control? The COVID-19 vaccines offer the promise of ending this crisis. But will everyone who wants a vaccine be able to get one? You will hear from world-class experts who will answer your questions next on COVID Vaccines. Ask the experts. Support for this program is provided by Baptist Health. Through the John and Margaret Krupa Distinguished Chair Fund. Welcome to COVID Vaccines Ask the Experts Town Hall, brought to you as a service of South Florida PBS and The Health Channel. I'm Olga Verde. We're here to answer your questions about the pandemic, the vaccines, and when we might all be able to get back to something close to normal. I'd like to introduce our expert host for our evening, Dr. Michael Zinner. Dr. Zinner is the Chief Executive Officer and Executive Medical Director of the Miami Cancer Institute. He was the Clinical Director and Surgeon-in-Chief at Brigham and Women's Hospital, as well as the Mosley Professor of Surgery at Harvard Medical School for 22 years. Dr. Zinner, it is a pleasure to have you tonight. So please, I start with this question, where do we stand right now with this pandemic?
2: Thank you, Olga. All of us on this panel have been part of the greatest public health crisis in our lifetime. We are navigating through the darkest winter of our healthcare profession and face some of the greatest challenges we've ever seen. Tonight, we're here to answer your questions and deal with your concerns to make you aware of where we are with the most ambitious mass vaccination effort in our history. The potential of soon ending this terrible epidemic is real but it's going to take a lot of hard work to get there. Tonight we're here and we're prepared to move on to the next part of the questions. Thank you. We are we stare illness and death in the face every day and are among the greatest problems that we have to deal with in our heroes. So as we look forward to answering some of the questions tonight, we turn to our panel and first back to you Olga.
1: Thank you, Dr. Zinner. I'd also like to welcome HITN's Vida y Salud. Gracias por compartir con nosotros. Dr. Zinner.
2: Introduce my colleagues. First, Dr. Anthony Fauci, head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease, and is known as the country's leading infectious disease expert and the chief medical advisor for President Joe Biden. Then, Dr. Atul Gawande, is surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital and a Harvard professor. He's a former member of President Biden's transition COVID Advisory Board. Next, Dr. Onre Ford is Dean and Chief Academic Officer at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. And last, Dr. Gita Nair who's Assistant Clinical Professor of Medicine at Florida International University. Welcome to you all. Great to be here. Thank you for joining us, and, and l- let me begin with the first question. Uh, President Biden had promised 100 million vaccinations in 10, in 100 days, and now he's raised it to 150 million. Dr. Fauci, let's start with you. Is that really going to happen? Well, he's still sticking with the 100 million being the
3: floor and not a ceiling, uh, The most important thing is to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as we possibly can. The goal that was set uh, is quite, uh, you know, in some respects an ambitious goal, even though early on, like right now, we have seen the last couple of days of getting a million per day, things could get more difficult as we try to vaccinate out into the community because logistically it's easier when you're in a hospital setting or going into a nursing home to vaccinate. But when you have to go particularly into communities where you have brown and black people who don't have access to healthcare as much as others might, or who live in areas that are not as accessible. So the bottom line is it's an ambitious goal. It's quite a reasonable goal though. And I believe
2: that we will meet that goal. Oh, let me go to Dr. Gawande. Um, I don't know about your area, but in our area, we're having a problem. We've stood up several vaccination sites, and we have had to cancel patients with great disappointment on their hand. What's it like? What's going on in, in your part of the country?
4: Uh, it's it's It can be not dissimilar. Um, I've been driving, among other things. Uh, we stood up a uh, stadium vaccination at uh, Gillette Stadium. We're opening Fenway Park next week, and some of the critical things we've found is, number one, um, you don't wanna schedule unless you have vaccine in hand, and that desire to open up appointments leads to that kind of chaos where you can't get people in because you don't have that vaccine. You know, Until now, we've been in a situation where the vaccine availability has been unpredictable and, and the federal government's commitments have been unreliable. Um, the new administration's commitment to provide three weeks of forward lookout, three weeks of predictability, will will change that enormously.
2: Well, that is good to hear because we didn't know week to week what we were going to get and unfortunately made commitments that we had to cancel. And boy, you can understand the disappointment of the people on the other end of the line for that one. Olga, let me turn back for questions.
1: Thank you, Dr. Zinner. Dr. Gawande, I actually want to follow up with a question. Can you tell us about the mass vaccination sites that you are working on, including the iconic Fenway Park? And I do have to admit, I'm a huge Patriots fan, so I'm going to include as well the Gillette Stadium in Foxboro as well. Doctor?
4: Well, so one of the things has been that this vaccine is different from just giving out a flu vaccination, and the delivery process is complicated by a couple of things. Number one, uh, because we want to monitor people for an allergic reaction, a severe allergic reaction, you need 15 to 30 minutes of observation period, and many offices aren't set up for that. Furthermore, you have to use every last drop in every vial, which means you can't just leave it on the shelf and have it available for when you're when your patients walk in, we have scarce quantities, we want to get it to the high priority people and orchestrate a a high throughput process to make that happen. And so that's made stadiums and those kinds of large sites very successful in driving these kinds of vaccination efforts out. And we're we're opening more and more of those uh, high capacity locations throughout the country.
1: Thank you, Dr. I- Gawande. Here's our next question, Dr. Zinner. Please address the fears many people in underserved communities have about the vaccines. Were people of color included in the clinical testing? Dr. Zinner?
2: So there, here, here's a situation, here's the problem. We've got people who are waiting desperately to do anything they can to get a vaccine. And then we've got a group of individuals, a group of people that are having difficulty understanding whether they should get a vaccine, Whether they can get a vaccine, or they don't want a vaccine. That's an issue that I'd like to address with two of our panelists. First, Dr. Ford, can
0: you tell us what the experience has been with you and the group that you deal with? Well, thank you so very much. Um, Without question, it's a real challenge in the Black community. And what we have tried to do as a health system is to make sure that uh, we are in contact with community leaders uh, community centers, churches, barbershops, hairdressers to try to educate everyone on the importance of getting vaccinated. Uh, because at the end of the day, when we look at uh, the effect of the virus, we know it affects a greater proportion, a disproportionate uh, uh, number of Blacks uh, and brown people, and in particular, not only do get a higher rate of infection, but also the mortality has been significantly higher in that community. So if anybody should be vaccinated, it's exactly black and brown people. That's why we have made a targeted effort to try to address this, to try to reach out to members of the community to convince them that this is a very very important uh, uh, initiative. And, and, And I don't hesitate to let them know for one thing that I certainly have been vaccinated. And then if you're worried about complications from the vaccine, you only have complications in survivors. So if you die from COVID-19, from COVID-19 infection, then you're not going to, be around to know whether or not there was any complication associated with the vaccine. So so I think this is the kind of persuasive argument we are trying to drive home to the community with some degree of success. But we recognize that it is indeed an uphill battle because of the historical challenge that we have to deal with uh, as far as skepticism and enrollment in clinical trials. Especially based on the Tuskegee experiment that we all know so well. You know, you make an incredibly
2: important point, Dr. Ford. And I want to turn to Dr. Nair. You work in that community, you have a clinics in those committees. What, what what is your reaction and interaction with the patients that you take care of?
5: Sure. So first of all, Dr. Zinner, thank you so much for having me, Olga PBS, really just humbled by the, the uh, my colleagues here on the town hall. So Listen, this is a really important question. And, and the number one question I'm getting from this community is, Doc, am I the guinea pig? <clears throat> am I gonna be the first one, right? And my answer to them is, look, this is my first pandemic, right? Just like most doctors out there, not all of us are Dr. Fauci. So we, there are things that we know and there are things we don't know. What we know is exactly what Dean Ford said, which is that we know if you are from the black or brown community, you are hit harder by this virus. You are four times more likely to be hospitalized. You are three times more likely to die. What we also know is that we have studied this vaccine in these populations. We have studied it in the black and brown community. We have studied it in men and women, and we have found that it works. It works across the board. I have been vaccinated. My family has been vaccinated, and I am encouraging every patient to get vaccinated.
2: Thank you, Dr. E. Uh, Dr. Fauci, I want to turn to you for a second. Uh, can Can you tell us about herd immunity and what that is, but also importantly, what if we don't get the members of that community vaccinated, are we going to be able to achieve the kind of herd immunity we want to achieve?
3: Well, herd immunity by definition means you get enough of the proportion of a population vaccinated and or having gotten infected, and in most infections, most, that usually leads to immunity. Uh, For example, with measles, it would be lifelong immunity. For measles, for example, which is a 98% effective vaccine, um, and it is a highly, highly transmissible virus, you need a high percentage of the population to get herd immunity. And herd immunity merely means it's kind of a metaphor when you have the overwhelming majority of the people who are protected the vulnerable among us who either can't get vaccinated or for one reason or other don't respond are protected from infection because the virus does not have the leeway to go easily among them because most of the people are protected. It's almost like when you see a picture of a metaphor in the jungle, you have a herd of wildebeest there all together and you got a couple of lions trying to look for the weak baby or the old person there. The herd protects the vulnerable. So with regard to infections like SARS-CoV, we don't know exactly what the number is. For measles, it's somewhere around 90%, because we know from the experience in some of the sections in New York City, when some of the Orthodox Jewish population did not get vaccinated, it went down to around 80% of the people vaccinated, and they had a lot of breakthrough infections. We estimate that the requirement for herd immunity for SARS-CoV-2 would be somewhere between 70 and 85%, which I believe gets to your question and what was just said by the other panelists, that if you have a substantial proportion of the population who don't wanna get vaccinated because of hesitancy, you won't reach optimal herd immunity. So what you would have is you won't have the kind of strong protection of infection. So there's two good reasons. Well, a number, but two prominent ones, why you want minority populations, (laughs) particularly African-Americans, to get vaccinated. One, for their own protection, since they're vulnerable for a number of reasons, including their underlying medical conditions, which they have in a greater percentage than the general population, but also, because you want them to contribute to the broad level of protection in the community, which we refer to as herd immunity. A very good reason why we should get as many people vaccinated as we possibly can.
2: Uh, What an incredibly important societal point. I I thank you very much, uh, Dr. Fauci. Olga, I'm gonna turn it back to you. I know we've got lots of questions coming in from our viewers.
1: We really do. We have one now from Lauren in Minneapolis. Let's get to that. She writes, will the COVID vaccine be like a once a year shot, kind of like the flu, which we do every year? Or will it be like the measles, where we only receive one shot uh, once in our lifetime? Dr. Zinner?
2: You know, a couple of you might be able to weigh in on this one. Let me start with Dr. G. Go ahead. uh, Let us know what the experience is when you're out in the community and get asked that question.
5: Sure. So thanks, Dr. Zinner. So first of all, Lauren, great question, right? Right now, it's too early to tell. We're in firefighting uh, mode. It is all about putting the fire out and focusing on the lives to save right now today. As we put out the fire, we are going to focus on whatever we have to do to make sure the house never catches on fire again. So the reality is it's just too early to tell.
2: Okay. Uh, Any other panelists be able to comment on that? No, ditto,
3: she's absolutely correct. I mean, our experience with this is measured in less than a year, because we only began vaccinating people on a phase three trial. The first one started on July 27th. So we're not even anywhere near a year into the experience. So the bottom line is we do not know, and only time will
2: tell. Thank you, Olga. Let me go back to Olga. Any uh, addition, let's go on with more questions.
1: Let's do that, Dr. Zinner. I have one here from Mary in Jacksonville. Thank you, Mary. Her question is, what is the latest recommendation for people with a history of severe allergic reactions to not only medications, but foods as well? Dr. Zinner.
2: But let me start with Dr. Gawande. Um, Who should not get a vaccine as we address this issue of allergies and allergic reactions in the past?
4: So it's really only two that we're instructing the people coming into our vaccination centers. Um, One group are those who have an allergic reaction to a specific component in the COVID vaccine called polyethylene glycol. Those uh, people who have a history of reactions to just that would not be able to, we recommend not having the vaccine. The second is if you had a severe allergic reaction, an anaphylactic uh, attack, to the, um, to the first shot, you should not get your second shot. Um, as a kid, I received the smallpox vaccine. My parents are from India. They wanted to return to India after they finished their medical training here. And, uh, and I had a severe allergic reaction to the smallpox vaccine. Um, I could not get the booster shot, therefore could not actually leave the country, which is part of the reason why I, I stayed here. I didn't get to leave until smallpox was eradicated. In 1979. So, this is not uncommon, but smallpox vaccination was highly effective and safe. And same with the coronavirus vaccine. Dr. Guani, why didn't I, you tell me that before I hired you? But I, Dr.
5: <laughs> <laughs> I'll, well, I'll just Good, good, to, good for just us time that I you
2: in. got an allergic reaction.
1: You know,
5: I'll just chime in to also say one category we forget to sometimes mention is the acutely ill. Right. So often in the hospital, when someone is acutely ill with COVID, we say, Hey, can you know, can I get the vaccine doc before I leave? And again, we, you know, we want to remember that this is not the population. If you're actively sick, this is not the time to get the vaccine. You want to recover, get better, and then absolutely get the vaccine.
3: Thank Dr. Zimmer, can I also m- mention one thing that I think is important too? Because there's some misperception that if you are a person who has an immunosuppressed disease or you're immunosuppressed for any of a number of reasons, you're healthy you're well, but for some reason or other, you have a compromised immune system. The only reason you wouldn't get vaccinated is if we were dealing with a live attenuated vaccine. This is not a live attenuated vaccine. Now, if you have a suppressed immune system, it is conceivable and maybe likely that you would not have as robust a response to the vaccine, but it isn't a safety consideration because we get asked often, well, you know, I'm I have this uh, immune deficiency, Um, should I not get vaccinated? I think that's a good reason that you should get vaccinated because you're gonna be vulnerable to uh, a serious outcome from COVID-19.
2: You know, Dr. Fauci, let me follow on with that. You know that uh, my current position is with the Cancer Institute. Well, a lot of the cancer patients ask us that very question should th- those with compromised immune systems who are either under treatment or or just before or just after treatment, should they get the vaccine? I know how I would answer, but I'd like to know how you would answer.
3: No, I would say yes. I think that's the vulnerable population that you do want to protect. That's the point. And there is this feeling that because I have an underlying condition that I should not get vaccinated. Now, again, it's always I would say likely that when you have a certain degree of immunosuppression, for whatever reason, that you're not going to get the most robust response to the vaccine. But some response is better than no response. And that's the reason why you want to protect the vulnerables.
2: Well, that's exactly, we told them exactly the same thing. Some response is better than no response.
5: Anyway, so Dr. I, I have to jump in as a rheumatologist and someone who, who trained with, with Dr. Fauci. So that's the question that I'm getting from all of my patients, right? And, and again, these are the zebras and the unicorns of medicine. So I just want to remind folks that when we have these conversations, there is no data on the immunocompromised, but just like Dr. Sa- Dr. just like Dr. Fauci said, this is the most vulnerable part of our population. And it's not unusual for us to not have a lot of data, right? There's, there. This is, again the rare diseases in our community that we don't have a lot of studies on for many medications and many vaccines. So this is something you really wanna have that conversation with your rheumatologist and and take part in that decision for yourself.
2: Thank you, Dr. G. All right, Olga, next question.
1: All right, Dr. Zinner, this one is from Angie and it relates to uh, women who are trying to get pregnant and women who are not. Mm -hmm. So if I've been trying to get pregnant for the last six months and I have not been successful, do you recommend I get the vaccine? And the other question is, if I am pregnant, should I receive the vaccine?
2: Well, let me start with this one. So that discussion goes on in my family. My daughter-in-law is an OBGYN. And when we talk, she tells me that she has that conversation 10 times a day with the women in her practice, about those who are either pregnant, those who are getting uh, IVF, those who wanna get pregnant, and they are not sure what the answer is. So let me turn to the panelists. Let me turn to Dr. G. You take care of again that same population. What do you tell your patients?
5: Sure. So I'm gonna answer this both as a as a doc as well as a mom and woman of childbearing age. I will not tell you how old I am, but I but I will tell you this is this is a ter- terrifying time, right? If you're thinking about getting pregnant or you are actually pregnant. And the best thing you can do is exactly like Laura said, is you wanna get this vaccine because you want to have a happy, healthy body. And the best way to do that is to arm yourself and shield your immune system. So whether it is the COVID-19 vaccine, whether it is the flu vaccine, you wanna focus on having a happy, healthy body if you are trying to get pregnant. And if you are pregnant, again, this is a shared decision you're gonna make with your doctor. There is no data at this time. We continue to learn as we go. But the reality is if you are pregnant, you are more at risk of getting an infection, any virus or bacteria, COVID included, and you're more likely to end up on a breathing machine. And if you lose oxygen, so does your baby. So these are important decisions you have to make for you, for your child, and you really wanna have that conversation with your doc. And you wanna keep in mind what your risk is, right? Are you a nurse on the front lines? Are you a teacher? Or are you in the basement watching Netflix for nine months straight, right? So you're gonna assess that risk with your doc, but I am telling everyone, as if they were my sister, you've got to get the COVID vaccine. You've got to do it.
0: So if, I, if I may amplify, if I may amplify um, we should start with the understanding that women, pregnant women were not included in the actual vaccine trials. Um, so the data are lacking. However, there are many women who, who got pregnant while after, after they received um, the vaccine. So, so some data are becoming becoming to get accumulated. Uh, but it's going to take a little bit of time for us to know what the facts are. But having said that, we know that during the third trimester, that's when the women are going to be most vulnerable, especially if you have comorbidities. So you're most likely to have a more severe, severe illness if you happen to have a comorbidity. So it certainly be, it would make much more sense for you to be vaccinated uh, so as not to end up uh, in the ICU and having all sorts of complications. We know that the transmission rate is kind of low to the fetus. Um, and, and last but not least, the mRNA, as we've heard before, the mRNA vaccine is really not as serious, but well, at least the risk is not as great because it's going to be degraded by the cell. It doesn't really get into the nucleus. It does not incorporate into the DNA. So, so for those reasons, it does make sense uh, for a pregnant woman or someone who is thinking about getting pregnant to actually be vaccinated from the very beginning.
2: Or let's Doctors not leave the that theme for a second. Let's not leave that theme for a second, um, because this is an mRNA vaccine. I've heard also rumors in the cons- in the in in the conspiracy world that this is going to affect male fertility. Is it going to affect male fertility?
0: Absolutely no. not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, in fact, we know that. The COVID-19 infection certainly is associated with impaired sperm function, from studies that were done right here at the University of Miami uh, Middle School of Medicine. Um, so we know that the vaccine can, actually, excuse me, the virus can actually infect the testes and and impair sperm function. But as far as the vaccine itself, the COVID-19 vaccine, it has no effect on male infertility or on sperm function. Dr. You.
3: Ford, what do you one of the things, excuse me, one of the things that people should be aware of is that although pregnant women were not allowed in the trial, so that was an exclusion criteria. since the EUA was given, there have been now about 10,000 pregnant women have gotten vaccinated. Okay. And getting back to what Gita just said, Uh, Many of them were healthcare providers who were saying, I'm pregnant. I really want to protect myself of getting uh, COVID because I don't want it to be a deleterious effect on my baby. So we will get data that will be followed. The FDA is accumulating that data. So even though they weren't in the clinical trial, we're starting to accumulate a lot of data. Thus far, no red flags about that.
5: Okay. Dr. Fauci, thank you. Dr. Zinner, I got to jump in because this feels a little bit like he said, she said. So I got I to defend my ladies. So one of the things I think is really important to remember is when we don't have data, which was, Dean Ford is, is spot on for, one, it's coming in as Dr. Fauci just said, but when you're making these decisions with your doctor, right? This is a shared decision. This is your decision to make as a mom, a pregnant mom, a mom-to-be. The risk and benefit that you're going to put together with your doc Part of that includes how women of the household are being affected through this pandemic. What do I mean by that? You have a dual income household, right? If, if mom gets sick, pregnant mom possibly has other children. If mom gets sick, several things happen. One, income is potentially lost. Two, childcare is affected. Children have to be taken out of school because now they've been exposed. There are many numbers of things that need to go in that pro and con list. And when I'm having these conversations with my female patients, invariably we're landing on more benefits of the vaccine than risk, even without the data. So very important to keep that in mind. And listen, it's hard, whether you get sick from COVID or a mom gets sick at any moment, when I get sick, my whole household goes down. There's no food, there's no childcare, right? So these are things we have to remember. Nobody wants to see dad doing braids in the morning before school. There are a lot of effects that happen to a household when a mom gets sick. So make sure that's on your list when you are deciding the pros and the cons. And I think you will find out that taking the vaccine has more benefits than risk.
2: Thank you, Dr. G. All right, Olga, move on. Next question.
1: Here we go. And I'm glad we clarified all that. The next question is, will the vaccines work against the new virus strains? A lot of concern there. And Dr. Zinner, I'm going to follow up with Bill. He takes it a step further, if you will. He wants to know, will the COVID-19 virus continue to mutate faster than our ability to contain it, leading to a constant cycle of new vaccines? Dr. Zinner?
2: So, Dr. Fauci, there's a lot in that question. And, And one of the leading parts of that is we're beginning to see in this country The mutated strains that come from the United Kingdom, that come from uh, South Africa, and particularly the ones from Brazil. Now, there are a lot of uh, Brazilian-Americans in our part of the country that go back and forth to Brazil. So that's a several-part question about, one, where are we with the mutations and the strains? And then, obviously, what are we going to think about when we talk about the vaccine? You're asking me? Yes, Dr. Bakhti, I'm sorry. Okay,
3: so I'm sorry, I i did not didn't hear. <laughs> OK, so it, it's a complicated issue. So we know that RNA vaccines mutate very readily. That's what they do. That's, that's, that's part of their, their existence, is to mutate. The more they replicate in the community, the greater chance they have to mutate. Most of the time, the, mutates, the mutations don't result in any functional change in a virus. But every once in a while, you do. That's the situation that we're facing now. And I'll explain in a moment what impact it would have on the vaccine. So the UK variant, which is now in more than 25 states in the United States, when you take a look at the antibodies that are induced by the vaccine that we are using, it does not appear to be a significant diminution in the effect of their neutralization in the test tube. Usually that reflects what you will see clinically, but the proof of the pudding is the clinical observation of whether or not the current vaccines. I believe with regard to the UK variant that we will be okay. Things are a little bit more formidable and concerning with the South African mutants because there's a constellation of mutants there that in the test tube in vitro diminish by multiple fold the capability of the antibodies that are induced by the currently used vaccine to neutralize the mutant. Now, it is still above the threshold of protection. So when you look at neutralizing titers that you may need one to a hundred to protect. So what the mean of the titers in the vaccine people is maybe one to 2,000 or one to a 1,000. You may bring it down to one to 300. It comes down a lot, but it's still above the threshold that you would predict a protection. Having said that, there's a big caveat here. And the caveat is, will that be reflected clinically when you get exposed following vaccine? The answer to the question, I believe is going to be forthcoming in the next few weeks because we have the Janssen or J&J as well as Novavax, which are doing their experiments in a way that might give us the answer because they are testing it in the United States and in South Africa and with Janssen, South Africa and Brazil. So when those data come out, we'll find out whether the neutralizing data correlate with the clinical data. Bottom line is we take these mutations very seriously. Currently, it looks like it will protect. Certainly, the UK is much less worrisome than the South African mutations. That's where we are right now. But in real time, we have to be prepared to upgrade the vaccines if it becomes necessary. And by upgrade, I mean make them with the insert to code for the viral protein that is associated with whatever mutation you're worried about.
2: I was going to ask Dr. Gawande, you're in Boston. You're in the area where Moderna is. And the CEO of Moderna recently came out and thought that with these mutations, He'd be able to, his company would be able to turn around a new vaccine with an mRNA content that, with the genetic code in a really short period of time. Can you share with us any of the information that's coming out of Moderna about this new mRNA vaccine type that's only covered by a lipid outside protein, I mean, lipid uh, envelope?
4: Yeah, credit to Dr. Fauci, the um, uh, NIAID and the NIH and their partnership with Moderna. Over many years, they really designed this whole approach that puts the code for the virus into the vaccine and allows your body to generate the antibodies uh, against that, that, uh, that section of code. Um, it allows you to change the code to meet the new mutations as they come out and what, they, what the Moderna folks have indicated, and Pfizer as well, is that although, uh, as Dr. Fauci said, the, um, the levels of antibodies still seem to be effective ones, they're going ahead and producing these booster shots with the new encoding, um, the new encoding that would allow you to fight off these other, these other viruses. And so the beauty of this platform that really is going to change medicine in, in much broader ways is that you can almost type out the recipe that you need for the, next, uh, for the next booster shot, the next vaccine, the next treatment. And it's only a matter of uh, weeks to a couple of months for them to generate production, uh, prove that this can work and then generate production needed to offer that capability. So um, that is a very big deal. It's a, it's a, a fortunate protection because I am worried as Dr. Fauci said, that some of these mutations coming out, uh, including the one in uh, South Africa and Brazil, um, could be evading the vaccine as uh, as we move forward. Well, the way you describe this
2: engineered vaccine is one of the most optimistic comments I've heard yet about dealing with the mutations that we know are gonna come, because as Dr. Fauci said, that's what this virus does, is it mutates as it goes through the population. So thank you all, thank you. Let me, uh, Olga, let's, uh, let's move on.
1: Let's do that, Dr. Zinner. I just got a quick question here from someone that I think would, uh, would really be appreciated by many parents like me. And then I'm going to have a follow-up, Dr. Zinner, with another question that I just received. So the first one is, do kids have to wait until more people have been vaccinated to go back to school? That's something that I can totally understand in terms of asking. And experts are now saying with the new strain of COVID-19, One mask is not sufficient, and the public should wear two masks? Fact or fiction? Dr. Zinner?
2: Well, Dr. Fauci, I think you've made comments about that, so I'm going to let you open the one-mask or two-mask comments.
1: Well,
3: the CDC does not recommend that you must wear two masks. What they say very clearly is that everyone should be wearing a mask uniformly. The president himself has said he wants everyone to be wearing a mask for at least 100 days and very likely (coughs) beyond that. There are some people who make a reasonable deduction. They say, well, if a mask is a protective covering, that maybe two layers would be better. That could be true. (laughs) But the CDC still recommends a mask that everyone should wear. So people should not get caught up with two versus three, just
2: wear a mask. Well, Dr. Crouchy, in, in our part of the world, it's hard enough to get everybody to wear a mask, let alone two masks. So I concur 100% with your comments. Olga, your, co- your question.
1: And let's go to that other question that we just got in, Dr. Zinner. Do kids have to wait until more people have been vaccinated to go back to school? Lots of parents out there wondering.
2: Dr. G, you want to answer that question for
5: us? Sure, happy to. Olga, oh, I'm in the same boat, so I, I feel your pain, sister. Um, listen, <laughs> we we got to do what Dr. Fauci said: is we have to wear masks, right? And, and the reality of when we're going to get the vaccine and get it all around the country where we need to—that doesn't need to be the stopgap to getting us back to school. It is about wearing a mask, sitting down with your doctor if you have questions about the vaccine, and getting the vaccine as soon as you can if you're eligible and moving forward we cannot stop we've got to wear a mask
4: and add a couple of comments I mean,
0: there I mean, oh, sure. Go ahead. oh no please Henri. Uh, if Henri if I add, sure I, I i think the um, study that was just reported by the cdc uh really begins to shed some light uh, on this issue uh without question there is the capacity to open schools safely um, and it all depends on whether or not you are adhering to the um, all the principles that uh, Dr. Fauci has been uh, preaching for so long. Uh, proper physical distancing, uh, smaller classrooms, making sure everyone is wearing a mask. And, and what they were able to demonstrate was there was a very low transmissibility rate um, uh, in, in that setting. So, so you can uh, re- reopen the schools safely uh, if you have the means, if you have the Resources uh, to implement uh, all of the um, uh, public health principles that uh, have been championed. Um, The data are still not quite there yet, but uh, we know that uh, Pfizer has been able to enroll over 2,259 kids uh, um, in terms of uh, vaccines between the age of 12 and 15 years. Uh, And and, and soon we will be able to. Uh, begin to understand how safe it's going to be to um, uh, vaccinate uh, that population and begin to uh, hopefully um, expand the number of vaccinations to even younger populations to the extent that we can enroll other um, uh, younger children. But, but right now, we don't have the data yet on what has happened. There's uh, two, over 2,000 kids that were enrolled uh, in the vaccine trial by Pfizer. But but a lot of um uh, um data on the horizon that will help us uh, open schools uh, safely but in the meantime though we know that if we adhere to the strict public health principles that have been uh, championed uh we may be able to do that
4: i'll just Patrick, add a couple of things heard.
0: here
4: um uh, one is to say that uh to to reinforce what uh Henri just said uh schools have not been major sources of outbreaks the exception to that has been in communities where there's a lot of virus in circulation. Um, there are a couple of things that the Biden administration has indicated that they are backing. And, uh, and in fact, in my state and several others, we've committed to adding not only that the kids wear masks, but, um, and that we want to vaccinate the teachers and get that to happen as soon as, uh, as quickly as possible. But then also that we are uh, offering uh, testing for the staff and the students, um, as a, uh, as a capability. And, uh, I hope that, uh, Congress backs the funding to make that possible, because I think it will make it, uh, feasible for most, uh, most American kids to return to in-person schools. If we add in the funding to make that feasible specifically, uh, enabling them to get tested on a, on a weekly basis.
2: Thank you. Uh, You know, uh, one of our panelists, Dr. Fauci, has another commitment this evening, and uh, I want to make sure that he is able to make that commitment. So, Tony, I appreciate the time you've been able to spend with us, and I know you are about to go on another network, and we appreciate what you contributed to. But most importantly, we appreciate what you've done for this country for your entire career. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Fauci.
3: Thank you very much. Thanks, folks. It's a pleasure to have been with you this evening. Thanks a lot.
2: Thank Thank you. you. Olga, I want to to move on to uh, the next question. I see we've got uh, questions coming in from all over the country.
1: Let's do that, Dr. Zinner. I have an interesting one here from Christina from Orange County, New York. She writes, my husband and I care full time for my parents in our home. Soon, everyone in our household will be vaccinated. Soon, of course, it will be safe to have my brother and his wife over for a meal. But can they come over for a meal? unmasked they won't be vaccinated for quite some time based on current guidelines and because she asked that i found another question that came in that i kind of want to put together with that one as well dr zinner this is from ray in miami she writes if everyone is vaccinated is it okay to have a no mask dinner party at a private residence Hmm. dr zinner
2: you know uh, we get asked a form of that question virtually every day also So I'm going to ask the panelists, uh, at least a couple of the panelists, to to answer that. I want to start with Dr. G and then uh, Dr. Gawande, I thought maybe you could follow. And then Dr. Ford, if you have any comments also. So Dr. G?
5: Thanks, Dr. Zinner. So Christina and Ray, the answer is universally no. This was the number one question we got all through the holidays, and it's a big part of why we are really suffering this month, right? So for Christina, the family taking care of what sounds like a vulnerable parent, You've got to stay in your bubble, which means everyone that is in your family, in your household, even if you all have been vaccinated. Remember, you can still pass the infection on to others, particularly your brother that you mentioned that would be visiting. He sounds like he is outside of your bubble. So that is a big no for Ray regarding the masks. Listen, what we all have to get our head around is that we have to wear a mask for this year. We are going to have to commit to wearing a mask for 2021, whether you have been vaccinated or not. And I think then PBS will hopefully invite us back and we will talk to Dr. Fauci next year around this time about whether it's time to take a mask off, but we are just not anywhere near that to date. And we've got to remember with or without a vaccine, the mask stays on and you are still susceptible uh, to infect to spreading this virus if you are not wearing a mask. And again, we still have a lot to learn about these variants. So unfortunately, the answer is no. I can't wait to come over for dinner as well, but for now, the answer is no.
2: Patrick Guande.
4: So I, I'm going to add in that we recognize this is really hard. There are a couple of pieces of information that have uh, that we still don't have. First of all, all we know about the effectiveness of the of the vaccine is it keeps it reduces the likelihood that you will have severe illness resulting in hospitalization or death. Um, uh, you could still be we don't know we will have the data in the next couple of months that you could be carrying asymptomatic infection and be still capable of 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 spreading it. Um, Furthermore, there is a subset of people, at least five percent, who will get who will get infected regardless, and that is part of the reason. And 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 presumably an even larger number that can transmit. So the reason why we are continuing to ask that you wear the masks even after you've been vaccinated is partly it's protection for that subset who still uh, can get sick when we have millions millions of people we're actively infected in circulation right now. Second though, is to bring this this virus under control, we're gonna need to have the population, uh, uh, we we need much more of the population to be uh, vaccinated before those things can happen. And then the last part about it is that um, while we have so much virus circulating and you have people who are uh, getting partial protection from the vaccine, if we continue to expose those folks, you raise the possibility of driving more mutations that evade the vaccines. And we need to escape this pandemic, not drive more strains or resistance that develops.
0: And I completely agree with um, Dr. G and of course Dr. Gwandi. Now, the only other thing to add is, as you heard from Dr. Fauci earlier, uh, the South African variant uh, is, is pretty scary. So we don't know to what extent we would be protected from that. And so it behooves us to continue to wear a mask just in case that we could actually be facing one of those variants where we're not protected against. Um, so for all those reasons you've already heard, keep wearing a mask, whether it's for another year or until we get to that point where it's safe, where Dr. Fauci says, you can take the mask off. And I think that's exactly the right approach.
2: Well, it sounds to me like there's consensus. The bottom line is we're not going to do away with masks or social distancing anytime soon. Even if we get all the vaccines in the world, we've still got to pay attention to what's going on in this with this virus. So let's move on, Olga. Let's move on to the next question.
1: Let's do it, Dr. Zinner. I have a question from Maria, and she asks, when can we expect a vaccine regimen for infants and young Children. Lots of moms and dads out there wondering this. Dr. Zinner.
2: Uh, Dr. Ford, I- I'm going to start with you. You've got a background in pediatrics, so uh, why don't you tell us that? But also, can you add to that? What do we do now with those children who have severe underlying conditions like type one diabetes or severe asthma?
0: Well, it's an excellent question. Um, simply said, right now we don't have enough data to start vaccinating children. Um, the Pfizer first, the first um, clinical trial went to 16. Um, Moderna didn't only started at 18, so we can't really start vaccinating people who would be uh, younger than 16. But we know, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, Pfizer uh, just completed the enrollment of uh, children between the ages of 12 to 15. So hopefully within a matter of uh, several weeks, we will know about the efficacy and safety of the uh, vaccine in that population. Um, the projection, uh, is that by late spring, early summer, so no later than hopefully in June, uh, we will have, we will be ready to start testing even smaller children. Um, so hopefully between ages of two, all the way up to 15 and so forth, so that we can determine about not only the efficacy, but the safety of the, the vaccine in that population. And that's the time when we really know if we can, if we can, and truly vaccinate uh, children in, in significant numbers. But until then, uh, there isn't much we can do um, uh, about that. And that's just a matter of safety. So
2: so if I hear you correctly, we're going to hold off until we get more data to know about the safety of these vaccines in children. That's okay.
0: correct.
2: Olga, next question.
1: All right, Dr. Sinner. This one is from Julia in West Palm Beach. I also need the pneumonia. Vaccine. How long should I wait before getting that, Doctor Zinner?
2: So I'm going to ask Doctor Guandi. Doctor Guandi, uh, seniors get more than just pneumovax or pneumonia vaccine. They get shingles vaccines. They get several kinds of vaccines. What do we do about the timing between those various vaccines that people really need anyway, and the COVID vaccine?
4: In the trials, there were uh, there was they asked for a two week period um after say a flu shot before you get the coronavirus vaccine not we're not recommending that you get these simultaneously
2: so a two-week period that once you got your vaccine then you can either you've had your flu shot or you can get your shingle shot afterwards try to space
4: them apart space them apart by by two weeks
2: and i assume that's because the cdc also wants to know if there is a reaction that what caused the reaction as opposed to going them temporarily too close together.
4: Uh, that may well be, and also um, if the immune response is affected in any way uh, by the presence of the, uh, of the other vaccine. Okay, and so, you. you know, what we know from the trials is that that it worked and was safe when you spaced them apart by two weeks. All Got right. All it. Right, thank you. Olga, next question.
1: Dr. Zinner, unfortunately, we are nearing the end of our town hall, which has been absolutely amazing with so much information. We have time for one more question, Dr. Zinner, and I believe you have one that everyone is asking every single day.
2: So this is one that all of us on the panel get asked every day also. And I want to go around the horn and ask all three of you to answer. When are we going to get back to normal? When are we going to be able to go out to a movie? when are we going to go out to dinner with our friends and family and enjoy what is as close to normal life as we can let me begin with dr gawande and then dr ford and then
4: dr g well i think earlier we all talked about the idea that we're gonna we expect to need to be in our masks um, uh, through this year but but let me say this is coming in gradations I believe you know, some of the signs are gonna be first, there's a stage gate that we're gonna see that the hospitals are protected and that the levels of, of virus start coming down. We're gonna find that the because the nursing homes and the assisted living are, are vaccinated, those people can, can come out of solitary confinement and see family with masks on. We will start to see that people can travel more safely, again with masks on and doing those things and that'll be another phase. And then another phase is we'll start to see that, um, that that we're able to have enough of the community vaccinated that the levels get to such low levels, we really can return to more and more of these more normal activities. Uh, how quickly it happens just depends on two things, how fast we're able to get the vaccine out and get all of us with shots and arms. And then the second is the science and what we learn as we progress further along. And if we find that transmission has really died down and that we're able to do more and more of these behaviors without causing this to come roaring back again, or to be dealing with mutations. Then, then we will hope we we will turn with the science, and if that can happen sooner, we will we will see it happen sooner.
0: Thank you. I think is, yeah, I think this is pretty really well stated, and and to that, all I can add is we will get there faster if we as a nation we as a society understand that we have a moral and ethical obligation to try to bring this uh, pandemic under control and it's a sense of social responsibility that will prompt us to not only get vaccinated because it protects us but it's also going to help to protect others so we can achieve the herd immunity that we talk about but also in a responsible manner we need to keep wearing our masks we need to start we need to think about how we not only protect ourselves but also protect others. And if we can embrace these moral ethical principles, then I believe that we have an opportunity to bring this pandemic under control very rapidly.
5: So, Dr. Zinner. I, so, so Dr. Zinner, you know, my my message to the viewers is is really a couple of points, and and again, not different from from Dean Ford or Dr. Gawande, But number one. Get vaccinated as soon as you have the opportunity to. Number two, wear a mask, save a life, commit to wearing a mask for this year. We are nowhere near taking our masks off, unfortunately. So we need to really commit to that. Have fun with it. My, my nine-year-old blings her mask out. She matches it with her outfits. Commit to it, do it, have fun with it. Make it part of your, your daily routine. Number two, if we did not answer your questions tonight, please make an appointment with your doctor. If you do not have a doctor, get a doctor online or offline. And if you do not have access to a physician, please go see your local pharmacist. Walk into your CVS, your Walgreens, your local convenience store, but please talk to your pharmacist. They will be happy to answer any of your questions about this vaccine. Number three, good information comes from experts like those on this town hall, comes from websites like the CDC. When you find good information, share it with your friends, share it with your family, Be wary of bad information. Do not share it. Make sure you're looking at what the source is before you take information home and to heart. And lastly, we've come a long way, right? We've come a long way. We couldn't have even done a town hall like this a few months ago. We have a vaccine. We have made tremendous progress in a very short amount of time. So I'm very confident we can do this. We just need to do all the things we just listed and we will get there.
2: Thank you. Let me close. We began this program reflecting on a very dark year we've all been through. But also tonight, we've heard some wonderful optimistic notes about our future. We should be grateful for that. And I want to thank all of my panelists for their incredible input. You really did help all of us understand what we need to do and where we need to go. And hopefully we'll get there sooner than later. We will get there and it's one of the most optimistic ends to an evening like this that I've had the opportunity to be with in a very long time. And I wanna thank you, and I wanna turn this back to Olga. Thank you for hosting tonight.
1: Thank you for having me, and thank you all for joining us for COVID Vaccines Ask the Experts Town Hall. It's been such a privilege to have all of our guests, and it's been such an honor, Dr. Zinner, to co-host with you. I appreciate your time, your knowledge, and everything you do at Miami Cancer Institute. Thank you, sir. I'm Olga Verdi nos vemos pronto. We'll see you next time. Support for this program is provided by Baptist Health through the John and Margaret Krupa Distinguished Chair Fund.